BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hey, everybody, and welcome to RealPod. I'm Victoria Garrick, former D1 athlete and mental health and body image advocate. Every Wednesday, I'll be bringing you awesome guests, weekly inspiration, and the realest conversations around everything and anything. Now let's get real. Welcome back to RealPod, everyone. I hope you're doing fantastic this morning. I certainly am because this is just, it's wild. It's truly wild. My journalism degree is shaking right now in in disbelief because we are being joined by one of the most iconic, notable journalists of all time. I mean, she is a household name. She needs no introduction, but I am going to give it to her because... If you work this hard in your life, you deserve people to just just list off your accomplishments. Today's guest is the one and only Katie Couric. She is a founder, author, producer, and as I said, one of the most notable journalists of all time. She worked for all three major TV networks, NBC, ABC, and CBS in 2006, where she was named the first solo female anchor of the CBS Evening News, which was historic. She also has been indicted into the Television Hall of Fame. Katie's hosted her own talk show, served as a global news anchor for Yahoo. She recently became a New York Times bestselling author following the debut of her memoir, Going There, which is incredible. It is out everywhere now. Her memoir is called Going There. We have also linked it in the description for you to purchase. It was an incredible read. I loved every single second of it and am honored to have this opportunity to sit here and dive deep with Katie about all of her experiences. We're about to get started, but first I want to give a shout out to KJ. KJ, thank you for your five-star review. They said, absolutely obsessed with this podcast. The realness, honesty, and authenticity of the important topics and conversations have resonated with me so much. I'm thankful for Victoria for cultivating this community and creating a space for these conversations. I love RealPod and everyone should listen. Kimmy. Oh, Kimmy. The username says KJ4361, but she signed it, Kimmy. So we got her name. Kimmy, thank you. I really appreciate this. I'm so happy that you are a part of this community. And thank you to every single one of you who tunes in every Wednesday to listen to brand new episodes of RealPod. If you want to be the shout out on next week's episode, head over to iTunes where you can leave me a review. It helps support the show and I love your feedback. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen so that you get that automatic download every single Wednesday when we bring you brand new guests and the realist conversations. 
Without further ado, let's dive into this episode with the one and only Katie Couric. I am so honored to sit down with you and chat with you. I know you said you're exhausted. Talk to me. Like, are we getting little sleep? How do you, you would, I bet it's because you wrote the whole book and now it's out to the world, right? Well, let's see. I think it's a combination of sort of psychic and physical stress. I've been on a book tour. I finished four cities in five days. So I did Boston, New York. Washington, D.C. I had a day off and then I did Philadelphia. And so I think, Victoria, I'm just I'm just sort of I'm beat a little bit. But today I'm kind of relaxing. I've got some time before I go to Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, Atlanta and Nashville. But it's been really, really fun. You know, I know I'm going to crash. My daughter got married this past summer and you know, it was this intense three-day weekend, and it was so much fun. But after it was over, she just kind of crashed and and dove into this sort of like a little bit of a depression. Because I think when you're so, when your adrenaline is pumping so much, and you probably know this as, as an athlete, you know, your adrenaline is pumping, and then, you know, you're on this intensely focused mission And then suddenly it's over and you have to adjust to that as well. Totally. And there's all these expectations around the wedding being like the best day of your life. And I'm actually in the process of planning my own. I know. Congratulations. Thank you. With my mom. And I have to tell you, my mom sent me your mother of the bride dress. She was like, look at Katie Couric's dress. It is so tasteful and perfect for the MOB. You know, my mom, like my mom has been searching for her MOB dress more than like I have been searching for my actual wedding dress. (laughs) But something I I relate to is all this hype for this, this day, this moment. And then afterwards you wake up and everyone's gone home and, and you're just there. And I feel like that happens. I mean, a wedding's a great example, but I even could think about your career, right? And being on the Today Show and all and doing all these things. And then one day you just have less that you're doing and you have less that you're involved in. And I bet now it's like you are reminded of how hard you were working and how much time you spent on these things back in the day. Yeah. Well, you know, I never really slowed down because I did a five uh, six-hour documentary series for National Geographic, which for a year I traveled all over the country, you know, exploring big issues like tech addiction, Confederate statues and iconography, Islamophobia, political correctness on college campuses. So I never really have slowed down at all professionally. And then I started my own media company. We have more than 35 employees. We have a newsletter, a podcast, video series. I'm developing documentaries and scripted shows. So I have never really slowed down, but I would say the level of intensity going on an actual book tour with, you know, a live audience, a theater full of people, and just, you're right, putting a book out in the world and dealing with you know, all sorts of weird press about it, which was was kind of a shock to me. You know, it just has me on a heightened state of alert. You know, when your parasympathetic nervous system kicks in, the fight or flight thing that happens to you biologically. So I would say that that my work really never slowed down. I just had more flexibility 
in terms of my hours and what I really wanted to focus on. I didn't have quite the schedule of going into a place, doing a live show every day and going home. And in in a way, my current work is almost more demanding because there's so much, it's, it's so varied and I have to make time for all of it. So, you know, it really wasn't a reminder of how how hard I worked. I think it was just a reminder of how hard it is to do everything at once and do it all well. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Now, obviously, when you were first beginning your career, it wasn't as common or traditional for other women to like have the same pursuits and, and have the same dreams because it was, I think, I don't know what the exact stats were, but maybe like 50-50 of like a woman getting a job or like staying at home. And then now you kind of detail just how you've never really stopped. Do you feel like you are built different or that that's just an innate thing in you? Like what about grinding all the time like is addictive? Yeah, I don't know. That's an excellent question. I'm not sure what it is. I, I think that sometimes I think I'm afraid to slow down because I'm afraid to actually think about things (laughs) and that kind of constantly to be going, going, producing, you know, working hard, just as you say, grinding or just driving forward. It's something I think I'm inherently built for, but I also think I have a hard time really slowing down if I know there's other stuff that I'm going to be doing. But I like to be sort of this very productive person. I think my mom was like that. And I think I so kind of equate my productivity with my self-worth in a way that's probably pretty unhealthy, actually, Dr. Garrick. Yeah, no, honestly, this is, this is, this, Katie, this is, this is great. We're going to, we're going to keep diving even further. (laughs) And I totally feel you on the, like, never feeling like you can slow down. Lots of times when people just go, 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 it's that fear of like, well, what's going to happen in the quiet? Like, what am I going to learn about myself? What feelings are going to come up and are those unbearable for me? Yeah, I mean, I have, and there have been times where, where I am very contemplative and quiet. I don't love being alone, which might be another symptom of feeling avoidance. (laughs) Um, But yes, I, I mean, I think I have. I can't think of any moment where I've sort of not been thinking about what I'm gonna do next, especially professionally. But I do think that I've had quiet times and reflective times and thoughtful times that I've used to kind of sort through different feelings I've had. I think I'm pretty emotionally healthy, actually. And maybe I don't need to do a lot of soul searching and spend a lot of time alone. But that's an interesting question. I think it's more sort of philosophically and theoretically this kind of desire to just really be productive and put good things out in the world and feel that I'm of service in one way or another is something I think I've had ever since I was a little kid. You know, I remember being on the student council in third grade and Mm -hmm. running for vice president and president of my elementary school and always thinking about what can I contribute. But that, that might be a certain pathology that 
as you point out, isn't always healthy. But I do think it's a common characteristic in driven people. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you're listening to this podcast, my guess is you know just how important it is to prioritize our mental health and take care of our overall well-being. I am not ashamed to say I go to therapy. I love therapy. In college, I went for two years straight. And even now, when things get tough and I need to talk through things with a professional, I make appointments. And if you go to betterhelp.com slash realpod, they will assess your needs, whether it's anxiety, depression, relationships, trauma, grief, or family conflicts, and they will match you with your own licensed professional therapist who you can start communicating with in just under 48 hours. I love services like BetterHelp because you can message your counselor at any time and get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions all without having to sit in a waiting room or leave the comfort of your home. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they can make it easy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed, which is so important. BetterHelp is more convenient and affordable than in-person therapy and financial aid is available, which makes it even more affordable. In fact, BetterHelp has become so popular that they are now recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. So if you want to get on that come up, start feeling happier, you can get 10% off your first month as a RealPod listener by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash RealPod. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash real pod. With the memoir being out into the world, it does feel like the first time that you are kind of pulling back the curtain and revealing how you really feel and how you've perceived everything in, in your life. And something that jumped out to me in just the prologue was people think that they know you, but it's two hours a day in a manufactured setting. And on top of it as a journalist. And I actually majored in journalism. So I aspired to, to do some similar things, you know, when I veered off the path, but there is overlap. And it's unique because as a journalist, you're also impartial to an extent because you need to be liked by everyone. You need to be liked by people in this class, people from this background to be on a program and kind of represent America. So what was it like for you all those years balancing who you were and then also knowing the person that I am needs to be liked by almost everyone out there. The whole idea, I think, Victoria, of being liked is such an interesting concept. You know, I think you have to think back. You were probably five years old. But when I did the Today Show between 1991 and 2006, the media landscape was so different. I always say today mass media is an oxymoron because it is so fragmented and siloed and media is so, you know, flat versus smaller entities with more depth. And, and being liked is, is an interesting concept. I think that when I did the Today Show, I really didn't concentrate on, will people like me? I sort of was myself and luckily people gravitated to me. Having said that, there were certain, I think, uh, boundaries for women, especially back then, that you couldn't be too assertive. You could be assertive, but you also had to be feminine. You could be strong and tough, but you couldn't be that way all the time. 
You know, I think you had to be palatable and you had to focus on how can I not be too offensive to a, a mass audience? And so I do think that people did get to know me. And I, I talk about that, I write about that in the prologue because they saw me going through various life events. They saw me having fun. They saw me being serious. They saw me, you know, making jokes or being silly or interacting with a whole host of people. But that is still, you know, a somewhat superficial look at people. And I think, you know, it's funny. I was watching the morning show, which is kind of crazy this season. And I was going to ask yeah, I, that, how that <laughs> seems for you to watch it. <laughs> I thought it was interesting because the I, I was watching the latest episode and Steve Carell's character, Mitch, said something about how people don't want complexity or multidimensionality. They don't want a three-dimensional person. And I do think there are, as I said, certain parameters for how you comport yourself and how you project yourself that people have these certain expectations. And it is a fairly, you know, one-dimensional rendering of a human being. And I think one of the reasons I was excited to write this book is, first of all, I think I have this unbelievably unexpected life and have had all these experiences that I think just on the face of them are really interesting. You know, the opportunities I've had, the people I've interacted with. But I also was excited to kind of reveal a lot about myself, a lot about my families, a lot about my quote unquote journey that is multidimensional, that paints a picture of somebody who isn't kind of throwing to a commercial or interacting with people on television, which by its very nature has a degree of artifice, right? And so that's what really appealed to me about the book. And, you know, I didn't really write it for journalists or media critics. I I really wrote it for people who were interested in my story, who might feel that they've got, that it's resonating with some of their own experiences, that it might contain without being a self-help book, some interesting life lessons. And for people who just wanted to understand what it was like to be a woman in TV news over that period of time, and also to comprehend all the cultural shifts that have taken place from when I started in the early 80s to present day in terms of gay rights and gender politics and race and all these things that I think we've witnessed undergoing a dramatic evolution. And so against that backdrop of huge cultural change, I think my life, sort of the microcosm of my life, is an interesting juxtaposition, if that makes any sense at all. It does. It does. And I want you to let I want to let you know that in reading the book, I certainly felt that ability to relate and see that that other side of you that maybe wouldn't have been there specifically when it comes to your eating disorder. You know, as someone who struggled with binging and while I didn't have bulimia, I certainly have some really dark moments I can recall where like that purging element 
snuck in. And that, like, for me, haunts me, like, what that relationship was like with food. And then to open your book and read these detailed narratives about how that manifested itself in you, and then to step back and be like, oh, but this is Katie Couric. And then it it just further validates that everyone is a human and then has their struggles that they're going through. And I do want to hear a little bit more about what that was like for you, because it seems from the book, right, that this is all sparked when your sisters get into Smith's College, you get rejected, and then you go straight to kind of cope uh, or gain control in this way. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but was that the first moment that 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 action had happened for you? Yeah, it was. And it's interesting. I mean, I think if I look back, there were a whole confluence of things that probably triggered that behavior. And I think a lot of it was kind of meeting the high standards that had been set by my sisters. You know, it's birth order is so interesting to me, Victoria, because I'm the youngest of four. And my sisters were really set the bar high, as I wrote in the book. And my parents and my brother did, too. And my parents had very high expectations for us. But I was a little bit of the goof off, get away with everything because I was sort of charming and could kind of talk my way out of or into any situation. And I was on the track team. I did gymnastics in high school. And I don't know, I guess I was, I I mean, the root of it might have been shame or feeling less than feeling as if I couldn't, you know, measure up to my family's expectations or my, my sister's. I don't really know what it was, but I think there was a lot of societal pressure too, because just as there is today, I think there was and continues to be so much pressure on this idealized notion of beauty. And I remember I was this really skinny kid. I think I weighed 45 pounds and when I was in fourth grade, like I was very skinny and sinewy. And then in puberty, I started to develop curves like most girls do. And I think that sort of change in my body and it, it, it coincided with I was less athletic as I developed. You know, I was a super fast runner. I was one of my proudest moments was being pulled out of fourth grade to run against the sixth grade boys because I was a very <laughs> fast sprinter. And I remember the gym teacher pulling me out. I was just, honestly, I I remember it so well. I felt so proud. And I think I might have even beaten the boys or come close. I don't know what it was. But I think that, you know, my changing body may have made me less athletic. I think it made me feel perhaps that my body wasn't conforming to these you know, what I was seeing in Glamour and Mademoiselle and all these magazines and Twiggy, who was this 60s, you know, fashion icon. I mean, she was sort of the waif look was very in when I was a kid. My sisters and my mom were always dieting. You know, Tab and Fresca were in the refrigerator in abundance and cottage cheese. And, you know, so I grew up in this diet culture And a lot of unspoken messages about what I should look like. 
And I think it was probably, as I said, a combination of all those factors that made me start feeling bad about myself, you know, when I was 17 years old, which is, which is a sad commentary, but unfortunately, a, a very commonplace <laughs> reaction to, I think, these cultural forces. And Victoria, I'm sure you hear about this all the time. Certainly. And that was something I wanted to discuss with you is the way that diet culture and the beauty standard has evolved. It's wild to think about how that waif twiggy look was everything when you were my age. And now it's all about having curves and a huge butt and a tiny waist and big lips and big boobs. (laughs) It's like that hourglass shape that probably when you were growing up wasn't attractive. And it just goes to show how the beauty standards change and they evolve over time. But also how how stupid it is, right? And how, uh, but how powerful, how powerful and influential it is in terms of, I mean, it's so interesting from a psychological standpoint, this desire, maybe there's something tribal about it to look like, you know, whatever is the rage at that time and to go through great lengths to achieve a particular look that might be in fashion. I am so excited because RealPod is sponsored by Athletic Greens, which is my favorite. Max and I drink Athletic Greens every single morning. Athletic Greens is a health and wellness company that makes comprehensive daily nutrition really, really simple. Now, look, I don't promote a lot of supplements. I don't promote protein shakes and powders and all that stuff like ever unless I really use it. And if I think the way that it's marketed is well done and just encourages people to live their best life. And that's what Athletic Greens does. And I genuinely really love the AG1 mix. Now, AG1 by Athletic Greens brings comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition to everybody. Just one tasty scoop of AG1 contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, probiotic, greens, superfood blend, and more in just one convenient daily serving. Now, this special blend of high-quality bioavailable ingredients in a scoop of AG1 works together to fill the nutritional gaps in any diet, support energy and focus, aid with gut health and digestion, and support a healthy immune system. I love it because you can replace all the products, pills, et cetera, et cetera, with just one delicious drink. And I can't say this enough. I genuinely love it, which is why I'm hyped they are a sponsor. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase if you visit athleticgreens.com slash realpod today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash realpod to get a free one-year supply of vitamin D five free travel packs and take control of your nutrition with this special offer. So I hope you head to athleticgreens.com slash realpod and give AG1 a try. Now, when people tell me about meditation and mindfulness, it sounds easy at first and you think, oh, I'm just breathing and I'm just sitting there. But actually there's more that goes into the art of mindfulness. And something that's been really helping me practice that is open. Open is a mindfulness studio designing a new way to practice well-being. Open blends music, sound, breath, movement, and visuals to bring you into the present moment. I have been loving Open's breathwork classes. 
The class specifically is called Breathe. It's just incredibly calming and you don't even realize how badly you need to close your eyes, sit down, sit up straight and just slowly focus on your breath, especially with the instruction of the open teachers who are leaders in the mindfulness and meditation space. They have been hand selected from all over the world and come in with a wealth of knowledge and even their own cult followings. You can practice with open live or on demand with their library of over 300 breath, meditate and move classes. And those move classes are even yoga and Pilates. Love that. Classes are available via the open app or website with fresh classes every single day. So you can always discover new experiences designed for you. Open subscription is affordable and accessible at $10 a month price for a yearly subscription. And guess what? You can try open for 30 days for free by using promo code REALPOD when you sign up. So 30 days completely free. Give it a try. If you like it, keep going at $10 a month. If you don't like it, there's no strings attached. Head to open-together.com slash realpod and use code realpod when you sign up. Once again, that's open-together.com slash realpod and use code realpod when you sign up. You can also find the link in the show notes. We've kind of come up in a world that's told us our appearance is very much tied to what we want to accomplish in this world. And I know that's something you detail as as well. Yeah. Did you sense that a lot of your worth did rely on your appearance in the industry? I really think for me, I had to prove myself. I was never considered sort of a prototypical newswoman at the time. It was a, a very specific look, a very specific vibe that I did not align with. And I think for me... I always wanted to prove that I was intelligent. I wanted to prove that I had a certain skill set, that all these qualities that are not physical in nature, you know, having moxie and, and you know, uh, being assertive and writing well and being able to be a good journalist, that was paramount for me. For me, my appearance all I wanted was it to not be too objectionable. (laughs) So I wasn't really kind of striving to comport with what the beauty standard was at the time. I just wanted to look presentable. I didn't want my face to stop a clock because it's a visual medium, but I really wasn't about, at least in the early days when I was coming up, it was about, was I a good reporter? Was I a good writer? Was I smart? Was I able to put together an interesting story? Was I able to explore topics that I thought were important, like child pornography or all kinds of things I was doing as a local reporter? So I think the intellectual side of me was what I really wanted to reveal and to be praised for. So then I'm curious with the eating disorder did that become more of a just mechanism for control? Because obviously there are different reasons that eating disorders develop. And for me, it was definitely very image-based, but it's now sounding like that might've been how it started for you. And then as you went on your career, was it more just a way you'd developed your relationship with food? And it was less about the appearance and more about that this was the routine you developed? 
Yeah, you know, I I have never truly unpacked it in that analytical way. I would say it was probably self-punishment for feeling not good enough. There was certainly an element of feeling that I didn't like my body. And I think trying to attain a certain standard. And then I think, you know, it it probably was an unhealthy relationship with food all the way around the way I still probably have a certain degree of disordered eating, starving myself, you know, not eating, then making bad choices because my body, you know, needed fuel. And so I did this for about seven or eight years. And then I was able to just kind of stop on my own. I was lucky. But I think part of it was accepting that my body, I'm built a certain way that it didn't mean that I was less than because I didn't look like Cheryl Teagues or so many of the, your listeners probably don't even know who Cheryl Teagues is, but so many of the, the, the people who were sort of put on a pedestal for their physical appearance. I think it was just a gradual acceptance of, of my body, who I was, and the fact that it didn't, it wasn't directly connected to my self-worth or my worth outside myself. In that moment where you kind of maybe had that last purge or that last binge, and like you said, you were able to stop on your own, what was the inspiration for that? Or what was it that helped you flip a switch? For me, and I know this isn't true of so many people, and I'm I'm keenly aware of that and what a grip this can have on, on someone psychologically. I think for me, I started just thinking about my overall physical health and how damaging this was. You know, I would do it a couple of times a week. Sometimes I wouldn't do it at all for a month. It really varied. It wasn't an everyday thing. But I started thinking about my esophagus and my teeth and the fact that this could not be a healthy thing to be putting your body through. And also in my book, I write about the fact that in 1983, when when Karen Carpenter died, uh, that was a huge story. And I think it was so heartbreaking for me that I thought, gosh, this is a very, very serious situation. It could affect my heart. You know, she was anorexic and I wasn't. But but clearly this, you know, these disorders were could be could be fatal. So, you know, I'm a young woman. I'm a healthy woman. I love my job. I had great friends. I come from an incredibly loving family. And I thought, why am I doing this? You know, I want to be healthy. I want to have a great life. And I don't want to end up really hurting myself in such a way that it could potentially be lethal. And I've heard similar responses from friends even who say when the doctor told them this might mean you can't have kids, that that was their flip the switch. You know, there are certain things that you finally then get to that point of, okay, well, do I want this more than what could happen to me if I were to continue down this path? And now with social media, which we touched on a little bit earlier, obviously everyone has 
a way that they portray themselves online and then the response and the reaction from other people. And I think your relationship to social media and your story online is unique because when you were doing all these amazing things, we didn't have Instagram the way that we had it now. And there wasn't the immediate commentary and opinion from everyone else around the world. You've had to evolve with that towards probably the the ladder of your career. And so what has that been like for you? Because that's like a whole other animal that I feel like you didn't have to deal with. No, you're right. In, in fact, I remember very distinctly, there were two women who worked for the show, Kay and Nancy. And when I first got there, they would be responsible for viewer mail. And of course, there would be all kinds of comments. I really didn't see them much. I really liked these ladies. So I'd go back and say hi to them. They were so sweet. And, you know, they would pretty much put these crazy letters in the circular file. Or I guess if there was something serious, they would show one of the producers or executives. But, you know, it takes a lot of effort to (laughs) sit down put pen to paper, write your opinion, mail it off, you know, find a mailbox or whatever, mail it off to a television network. And it just wasn't that kind of immediate, probably dopamine rush that some people get when they are unleashing their anger against somebody in their path. So you're right. I didn't have that. I really like the community I've built on Instagram. I feel like I have a really smart, thoughtful following, but of course I get haters and trolls and, you know, I usually just block them and then delete their comments. If they're thoughtful and critical, I try to keep them up, but it is a very different world. And I interviewed Savannah Guthrie last night at my Philadelphia stop. And, you know, I'm not sure I would have the necessarily the constitution or the capacity to be front and center in the media world right now because it is so vicious and so bifurcated and so opinionated. I think it must be really, really hard. I have a friend who's on a a cable network and she said, I just never look at social media because it has become such a cesspool in many ways. But for whatever reason, I've been able to build this community that I think is full of interesting, interested people who are curious, who want to know what I'm up to or things that I care about, or if I post victims of, uh, you know, the synagogue shooting and give biographical sketches, you know, they're really appreciative of some of the things I do. But you're right. It was a very different world. And interactivity, I think, is can be incredibly gratifying. I mean, I think I'm sure you understand this, Victoria, but sometimes it can be really dispiriting and and vicious. And when people just tear you down for reasons that are really about them and how they're feeling and how they need to lash out to feel better about themselves or to have some kind of release, it can be really hurtful and, and very difficult. Certainly. And I've been thinking about how it's different too, based on what you're putting out to the world. So for example, like with my page and my content, I do feel like I am putting my heart on my sleeve. And so if someone says, oh, I don't like that. I hate that. You're stupid. You're this. 
it hurts because I'm like, yeah, that is me. You know, I'm not right. putting out something and saying, well, they don't, they don't really know me. I'm like, yeah, they really know me and they don't like me. And now with this memoir for you, I was wondering if you had any of those same feelings. Like, you know, the point of this was to finally be understood and to tell your story your way. And obviously some of the early leaks and feedback wasn't necessarily super positive. How did you deal with that? Because this was finally your heart on your sleeve. Have you navigated those reactions? Well, it was really interesting because if they had had any semblance of the book itself, I think it would have been crushing. But because it was the willful misrepresentation and kind of almost an alternative narrative that had been developed, I don't know, perhaps for commercial reasons, because salacious, sensational, honestly hate-filled content, as we've seen with the whole Facebook controversy, it does better than positive content. So I think that, as I said, if it had any uh, resemblance to my book, I think it would have been awful. So I kind of ignored it because it was so clearly out of bounds and out of left field. And I think it, for me, it was just a sad commentary on the media landscape because these tabloids got a hold of it, misconstrued almost everything I wrote or plucked little things out and strung them together and misrepresented the tone and the spirit and the content of the book. But then what happens is legitimate media outlets who also haven't read the book, then they start to repeat what the tabloids put out there. So I I think it was frustrating for me because I couldn't really talk about it for a couple of weeks. So that narrative was allowed to perpetuate. But I think once people started reading the book, And once I was able to actually talk about what was in the book, I think the narrative quickly changed. So I didn't take it personally. I I took it as irresponsible journalism, honestly. Also, when someone opens the book like, okay, I'm going to find. I know they're going to be so disappointed. Well, right. Like they're going to be they're going to end up on your side because it's like all the hype. It's just if you're saying it's untrue and also it's misrepresenting the words, then like you, you, you're you getting exactly what you probably hoped for in writing the book. Well, it's funny because I got a really nice note from a producer I worked with at ABC. And she's a, you know, a youngish producer. She's young. And she said, it was interesting. She said, wow, what a fantastic read and accomplishment. Truly loved it. I teared up thinking about my own dad many times when you talked about Jay and your dad, and then she talks about a letter from my dad I put at the end. She said, I, I both LOL'd and got mad thinking about those CBS days, laughed out loud many, many times throughout, and felt WTF indignation when I read the parts the tabloid press made so much fuss about. Such nonsense. No one will remember that because it's so period, damn, period, good. So, you know, Aww. to me, that's 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 validation. But it also, I think, points out the unnecessary ugliness of the initial tabloid press reports that, you know, as I said, we, when you read that Facebook prioritized angry face emojis because the content did better, 
I think it tells you a lot about the intersection of psychology and technology. And another comment I heard from someone in the publishing industry is good reviews don't sell books. That was one of the saddest things I had ever heard, Victoria. And I was like, well, what does? Like everything else these days, I guess it's controversy. So they ginned up this controversy, this completely faux controversy, which, by the way, focused on women, interestingly enough. And it was almost a meta experience. I talk about how women in in my business were pitted against each other in the media, and it was always described as a cap fight. Well, the men are every bit as competitive as the women. Trust me on this but yet they don't fit into this narrative of the cat fight. So I found it almost, as I said, a very meta situation where I talk about this in the book and how women are portrayed and positioned. And I saw it unfolding in real time. I thought it was fascinating on one level. It is. It's literally like you're thinking, this is exactly what I was writing about and it's happening again. Now, One of your through lines, I think, in your whole message is obviously, and I want to say female empowerment. I know that's a buzzword and it sounds rah-rah and it doesn't sound like it goes deep, but you really went deep. And all the times you were told no, you were rejected and you persevered and you were resilient and you kept going. And, you know, in the grief that you'd experienced and all that. So as you sit back now, wise, having all the knowledge it seems like in the world, especially to someone like me, you know, what is your advice and the few things you want to tell aspiring career women? Well, I think one of the things that I think is quite a through line in my book is not letting other people define you and define expectations. I think from the beginning of my career, I ignored people who said, you can't do this. Or if there was no one kind of lifting me up and saying, I want to help you, I kind of figured out how to do it myself. So I think persistence and focus and determination are really key qualities in pursuing a career. If there's something, you know, I don't believe in vision boards and those kinds of things, but I think you can have a mental vision board and say, this is what I want to do. I am going to learn something at every stop. I tried to really do a good job at the job I was in at the time. I wasn't always kind of saying, what's next, what's next, what's next? Because I think the experience I gleaned, whether it was as a local reporter in Washington, D.C., or later at WRC, or covering the Pentagon for NBC, I really focused on becoming the best I could be at that job. And that meant that I was ready for the next job. And I had put in the the blood, sweat, and tears of being good at something. So I don't, I totally agree with Malcolm Gladwell, who talks about, you know, you need 10,000 hours to become good at something. And I, I think the book is really about following your dreams, but they're only going to come true if you're willing to put in the work. And if you're able to to get better at it, I think that I was lucky because I think what I was striving for, I had the raw ingredients to do well. I always encourage people to look at their skill set, to think about what they love to do, to think about 
the kind of environment they want to be in? And do their aspirations match that? Because it's true. Sometimes you can't fit a square peg into a round hole. But if you do have the basic skill sets and you have a vision and a dream that you have to just keep working at it in order to achieve it. And I think I think that the idea of being intentional, I think, is very much in this book. I wanted to get married and have children. So I said, I'm going to find someone, a life partner. And I didn't expect to just be strolling, you know, around a bookstore and suddenly, you know, meet somebody in the, I don't know, fiction section. You know, I, (laughs) I really, I really made things happen for myself. And I think that's what you have to do to be successful. You have to create your own opportunities. They're not going to fall in your lap. If you want to do something, you have to make it happen. I mean, that's kind of the advice I would give to people. And of course, now in this day and age, everything is so different, right? And there's so many opportunities and trying to figure out how do you how do you marry all these these things and make it kind of fit into one career path? especially when young people don't really want to be in any job for too long. They're, they're jumping around having, you know, what, 20 jobs before they end up retiring. If Probably that's a low number at this point. And I also think finding people who can, can help you and mentor you is critically important, as, as Don Farmer did when I wrote a memo to Ed Turner after he said that I was successful for my breast size we sat down and together we wrote a memo. I was 26 years old, but that lesson stuck with me for the rest of my life that I didn't have to tolerate those kinds of remarks. And it was wrong, pure and simple. It was wrong. And that I could say, I could speak up, you know, I could let my voice be heard. So I think mentors are really important because they give you a lot of confidence and they, I think, reinforce the values you have and and help support expressing those values in a variety of situations. I'm sounding very self-helpy and vague, but I'm trying to kind no, of I'm figure living for out. It. I'm living <laughs> <Yeah>. for it. <laughs> Thank you for all of that invaluable information. I like I said, I'm living for it. So inspiring. I think a perfect way to really end this episode. And the very last thing I'll ask you, because I gotta know. What are like one, two, three nuggets for interviewers? Any interviewers listening? Any podcasters? I mean, you've you've mastered it. <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, first of all, I think like you were for our conversation, be prepared. Nothing's more frustrating, I think, to somebody like I'll put myself in this role. But if I were interviewing me, <laughs> nothing's more frustrating for someone to pour their heart and soul into a project work three years, sort of day in and day out, and have someone unprepared, someone who really hasn't read the book, hasn't really thought about it, and really hasn't put some time in to figure out good questions. So preparation is really, really important. I think know your audience. You probably have a a specific audience, Victoria, interested in, in some of the things we talked about. So I think that's really important. And I think being curious, I was um, saying the other day, you know, I think 
it's really important to be an interested person because it makes you interesting, which I said on another podcast. But I really do believe that, Victoria, that curiosity and interest and the desire to learn and grow is really the key to having a happy and fulfilled life. So, and I think it's the key to all the problems that seemingly intractable problems facing our country. You know, the ability to really listen and to be empathetic and to think about the other person and what they're going through. I think those are all really critically important qualities when you're having an, a, a conversation with someone. Of course, if you're interviewing a political candidate and you have to really hold that person's feet to the fire, it's totally very different. But I think just really being truly interested in what the other person has to say or what the other person has experienced and being a good listener is the key. And I think you did that because you picked up when I started talking about self-worth. You thought, oh, that's interesting to me. I want to move in a different direction. So having that flexibility to divert from your questions because something piqued your interest is a really good quality as well. So you did a great job. Oh, well, thank you so much. And thank you for your time. And all of that was so helpful. Like prepare, know your audience, be interested. I'm going to like live and die by those, Katie. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to have met you, to spoke to you. My mom is like hopping up and down, freaking out, listening to this probably. So thank you so, so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of RealPod. If this hit home or helped you in some way, send it to a friend, a teammate, roomie, share the love, share the realness. New episodes of RealPod come out every single Wednesday. So make sure you are subscribed to this podcast so you never miss an episode. To leave a rating or review of the show, head to iTunes and let me know what you think. I love hearing from you. Not to mention, you can stay connected with RealPod throughout the week seeing behind-the-scenes info and sneak previews of upcoming guests by following the at RealPod account on Instagram. All information about today's show and guests will be linked in the description of this episode. Thanks again for listening. I love you guys so, so much. Let's go dominate the day. And as always, keep it real.